really a, a privilege and a blessing to be able to stand before you today. You know, as I was thinking back over the last couple years, you know, you know our story. We've been in Africa for 14 years and been a pastor there. And over the last couple years, um, the Lord, we felt like the Lord was leading us back here and we began a transition process and handed the church over to a national pastor and stayed for another uh, three quarters of a year, kind of walked beside him as he was taking on that role. And then coming back here and being put, we were up in Calvary Chapel, San Jose, where uh, it was a situation a little like this, where there was a big project that they needed help with. And um, so my time since returning from Africa has largely, largely been just working on projects. Um, and uh, as a pastor, you just realize when you're, you're not teaching, there's something that's pent up and you just, you just, you just want to share. And so for me, it's actually very exciting to be able to uh, stand before you and just share what's on my heart, um, which is an amazing thing because there was a point in my life when I never thought I would ever stand before anyone. I was a total introvert and the thought of getting in front of people scared the life out of me. So that's just a testimony of what God can do in someone's life. But anyway, um, as I was uh, reflecting on what Pastor Brett shared, and we're going to go old school, no PowerPoint tonight, no videos. <laughs> um, as I was reflecting on what Pastor Brett shared from the book of Ephesians, I was just thinking about the verses that he brought his message from. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And he gave some for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that was the basis of his message, encouraging us as believers um, to see and to be excited about the task, realizing our different giftings, stepping into the different roles that we have in the work that God has put before us. And I was thinking about the theme that Micah has been talking about, reaching forward. And I just think what a wonderful uh, descriptive word, reaching forward, not, as he says, for a building. That's part of it. We're certainly excited about moving into a new space. Um, but reaching to a community and a ministry in that community reaching towards a new work that God is going to give us. And so Rob giving me this opportunity to teach, I felt the Lord was leading me back to the book of Acts, one of my favorite books to teach. And I think about the early church ignited by the power of the spirit in the face of great persecution, preaching a very simple gospel but that message and that influence would spread like wild, wildfire across the then known world. And this church, Godspeak, Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks, is on the verge of a, a new chapter itself, a new work of ministry, a new work of a new building up of the body of Christ in a new community. And in a sense, we are reaching forward with our hands out ready to receive that work which the Lord has for us. And as we do so, 
and in the times that I have the opportunity to share, I wanted us to go back into the book of Acts and just remind ourselves of what I consider to be some fundamentals of ministry, simple truths, not profound, things that I'm sure you've heard before, but things that we always need to be reminded of, at least I have to be reminded of. You know, I'm never fearful of sharing a simple truth. I was joking with Brett when he was preparing. I said, Brett, we're looking for deep thoughts, nothing but Spurgeon from you on Sunday. <laughs> Just giving him a hard time. But, you know, for me, I, I, having been preaching in Africa, my messages were, had to be very simple because there was language barriers, there was literacy issues. And, and, but I'm never fearful of, of sharing simple truths because Peter says in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, he says, for this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir up by way of reminding you. And so we do. I I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of simple truths. And and so I'm entitling these messages, um, ministries, uh, sorry, ministry principles from the book of Acts. And Tonight, we're looking at a message I'm, I'm just going to title, What Every Church Must Never Forget. What Every Church Must Never Forget. And um, certainly, I pray that as we are contemplating our move, our work, the building up of the body of Christ in a new community, I pray that as a church we wouldn't forget the very simple truths that are given to us here in the very beginning of the church, the early church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this evening. What a blessed time, Lord, for us to gather as brothers and sisters around your table to receive of the food which, Lord, you have for us this evening, spiritual food. Lord, you told us, you tell us in your word that you are the bread of life. And Lord, I pray that we would partake, we would eat of that food which you give us this evening, and it would nourish us, it would strengthen us, it would give us power, it would, it would cause us to grow, Heavenly Father. It would convict us, it would rebuke us, Lord, where necessary. But Lord, as we gather at the table in fellowship with you, Lord, open our hearts. Lord, I know we come midweek, our minds might be full of busyness of things we need to do, past lists on our mind, distractions, Lord. And I pray that you would just clear that away right now and allow us to sit at your feet and to listen, Lord, to what you have for us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Acts chapter 2, and uh, you can turn there. In the context of the passage, as we know in Acts chapter Two comes after the events, obviously, of Acts chapter 1 and 2, which is Jesus' ascension, his last words to the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until you have been endued with the power from on high, Luke 24, verse 49. Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, Acts 1, 8. And then the events of Pentecost, 
as they have been there waiting, the day Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes, the outpouring of the Spirit, the birth of the church, Peter's first sermon, and the amazing growth of this infant church. And we'll see the growth as it focused on four things. In Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, we see not only a fundamental tenet of our faith that we must ascribe to, but we see four activities that the early church, and I believe every church, should find itself engaged in. And those things are teaching God's word, fellowshipping, breaking bread together, and praying together. The church was focused on the word of God. And the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result was that there was a body of believers doing what I would call the church essentials, the word, prayer, fellowship, the sacraments. And as they did those things, amazing things were happening. Physical needs were being met. Social issues were being handled. Hearts were being transformed. And the church was growing. And the world took notice and the church was relevant. You know, I often ponder the fact that the apostles did not have to have a board meeting to figure out how to make this message relevant. Into that melting pot. And if you know your church history, you know that at that time there was great confusion and persecution into that melting pot of need, the church had an answer. It was an answer in Roman Jerusalem, and it's an answer today in modern day America. And it's why we have reason to be excited, even in the face of all the doom and gloom that we read in the papers and on the internet and in the news. And the question is, do you and I believe it? Do you and I believe that we have reason because we hold that treasure, as Paul says in Corinthians, we hold that treasure in earthen vessels. That treasure is Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We hold that treasure within us. And do we believe that that is enough? And this is what I want to look at this, this evening the fundamentals that every church needs to make a priority and the result, the blessed influence that God intends his church to have on every community that it is in. That with the eye of what this church is doing, taking a step into a new community and what, a, what an excitement we can have, what an anticipation we can have of not us, but the gospel through us doing an amazing work. So let's look at chapter two, beginning verse 40. We're going to read in the course of tonight through verse 47, but we'll start with verses 40 and 41. And with many other words, he, Peter testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3000 souls were added to them. Peter testified with many other words. What did he testify of? 
Well, when you look back in chapter two, you can see what his message was. He testified as to the veracity of Jesus as the Christ. The veracity of his death and resurrection, the, the truth of what he accomplished on the cross. He reminded them of Old Testament scriptures and how they were in fact fil- fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And he exhorted them to repent and believe. It was really a very simple message. But what was the result? Verse 41, it says, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, 3000 souls were added. Peter's simple message not only brought, brought fear and conviction, but a solution. You know, verse 37, previously up in chapter two, we can see that they were convicted and they knew that something wasn't right. It says there, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What had Peter said? He had told them that they, the Jews, had crucified the Christ. Now for a Jew, that would be the worst possible nightmare. The Messiah that they had been waiting for for hundreds of years prophesied and they missed him. Not only did they miss him, they killed him. And for a Jew that was willing to listen, that had to be just a horrific thought, a worst nightmare. It says they were cut to the heart. And they said, what shall we do? What a great question. It's a question that I believe every single person needs to come to at the point where they are convicted of their own sin. What do I do? And it's a question people will never come to if we never preach about sin because we never think we need to do anything. What shall we do? And as I said before, Peter's words brought not only fear and conviction, but a solution. And he he goes on to say, and he says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness accomplished, relationship established, hope restored. And that simple message in the power of the spirit brought 3000 people to salvation. And as you read through the rest of the next few chapters, you see many more thousands came to the Lord, but stop and, and look, look at what it says there in verse 40 he says, be saved from this perverse generation. You know, Peter was preaching to a perverse generation, boldly calling them out not infusing himself half in it and timidly kind of whispering or calling and saying, Hey guys, I have a thought for you. Boldly calling them out, boldly confronting the perversity, boldly admonishing them, letting them know what they did. You know, that brings encouragement to me because you know, in, the, in our day and age, certainly we feel that the world has never been more perverse than it is right now. And somehow we doubt the ability of the word of God by the spirit of God to cope. 
we come to the conclusion that somehow, God, you've never seen it this bad before, and we don't really know if, if your word by your spirit is powerful enough to affect. So we're going to have to bring in all kinds of other techniques to make sure it works. I think that's the attitude that so many churches adopt. At least they won't come out and say that, but by their actions, that's the way they conduct themselves in ministry. And so the first lesson I draw from this point, and I put forward, I put it forward to us in the form of a question that I always pose to myself is, do I trust the gospel? Do we trust the gospel as God's good news? That is the answer and the power for the world's pressing need. When we look at our world, our community, our bean patch, fundamentally, what is it? that the world needs. Yes, you know, there are many who need material goods. There are many who need education, many who need water, many who need healthcare, many who need food, many who need counseling. And you know what? We can bring the gospel in many creative ways. We can bring ministry in many creative, in many creative ways. But fundamentally, we need to realize that it's the gospel that they need. Amen? 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, a verse that I quote to myself literally every time I preach. It says, for this reason, we thank God that when you receive the word of God, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works or transforms you, believe, you who believe. And I think a pastor or a preacher or, who, or anyone who is preaching the word of God has to fundamentally trust that the words that, that he is preaching or sh- it are words that come not from our own wisdom or strength, but they come from the authority of the word of God. And because they are God's word, they have the miraculous effect of having a transformative effect on those who receive them in faith and believe in them. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The church, I feel like today, so oftentimes is apologizing for itself apologizing for its message, apologizing for its being confrontational. And that's primarily telling because it it makes us realize that we really don't trust the gospel in its raw nature. We somehow have to refine it, embellish it, compromise it. God's word is good news. It brings life. It brings healing. It brings restoration. And it was and is this message that we must be convinced of is true. And so my question to you tonight is, do you trust the gospel? As we go into this new community, do you trust the gospel? Because ultimately it's, it's not going to be how fancy the building is or how great our sound, our sound system is or lights or effects. It's, it's the gospel. It's the word of God. Amen. And that's what we fundamentally need to be excited about sharing. Isaiah 61, again, one of my favorite verses or passages. 
and I'm just going to turn there and read the full passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to comfort those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You know, I think of, again, of where we find ourselves in modern day America and the church. And we debate and agonize over the veracity of scripture and its relevance for modern day society. And pastors feel they need to augment or embellish the word to make it appealing. And I'm astounded, you know, what a blessed message that we have to share. What a, what a joyful task we have to do. And to me, the question is not the scripture's relevance. The in issue is our inability to be quiet enough to listen to it or our prideful skepticism making us unwilling to submit to it or our so-called superior intellect preventing the Holy Spirit from infusing us with it or our lack of courage and boldness to preach it, to preach the truth in love. Someone asked me one time, what was the most profound lesson that I learned from the mission field? And hands down, my answer was the influence of the gospel on a community. The influence of a church preaching the gospel on a community. And I know most of you have heard that story of, of what the Lord called us into and just bringing a church into a very God-forsaken place that was a garbage dump, that was a killing field, that people feared to go to and watching the influence, not knowing all that, planting a church there and watching the influence of the church in bringing life into that community. Amazing, beautiful. And that's what, what Isaiah 61 talks about. That's the words that Jesus preached at the onset of his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Good news. You know, our fear is that God's word will repulse people. And you know what? God's word may strike fear or remorse or trepidation in our own heart on any particular Sunday when we hear Pastor Rob preach or anyone else preach. And it may very well be a loathsome or, or bitter pill to the world when they hear it. But we have to be convinced that it is the only pill which will save us from the otherwise incurable disease of sin. I remember as a child, I have actually spent most of my life in Africa, but I remember my parents were missionaries and we were living in this country called Central African Republic, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, very difficult to get to. And malaria was very prevalent. And we had to take, at that time, there wasn't a lot of malaria medication, but there was a, a drug called chloroquine. And every Sunday, I, just this memory of a Sunday and chloroquine, chloroquine pills 
just went together. And I remember every Sunday there would be that gigantic pill on my, on my plate and I would have to somehow get it down. And as a kid, it just seemed like this loathsome task because when I would try to swallow it, it wouldn't go down and it would stay in your throat. And it was the most disgusting, bitter pill you can ever imagine. And I had to do that every Sunday. And I was just thinking of, you know, sometimes the gospel is a bitter pill. But, you know, if I didn't take that, I would get malaria. And malaria is a killer disease. It will kill people. And in the same way, you know, we have a cure. And for some people, it is a bitter pill. It is something they don't want to take. But does the fact that they don't want it because it's bitter stop us from offering it to them to save their life? Do we trust the gospel as good news? Do we trust the way that God used it in the early church as Peter preached it? it is the same way he will use it today as, as we preach it? Do we have a fundamental trust that God will accomplish his will through his word? Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I heard, I think it was Pastor Rob quoting this the other day. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and the other we are the aroma of life leading to life. To some, they're going to receive our message as a blessing. Life unto life. To some, they're going to receive our message as death unto death. They shake their fist at us. They snarl at us. They call us haters. They call us bigots. But we just need to have in our mind, that's the way the world is going to look at us. And we can't let that dissuade us. Back to the book of Acts, beginning in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayer. You know, as a pastor who's I've been involved in various kinds of ministry, as an assistant, as a lead in different places, but this verse, I would say, again, is one of my favorite verses in church ministry. For me, it's always a verse that keeps me grounded, going in the right direction. It reminds me of what needs to be the center of church activity, teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. As I said before, there are many things that churches can do and do get involved with, and those aren't necessarily bad. You know, our church in Uganda, we had a lot going on, a school, a medical ministry, a big children's ministry, a, a tailoring um, vocational training school. But I always had to make sure that those didn't become our identity. Oh, we're the school that does medical work. We're the school that does vocational training. I mean, the church that does vocational training. And I was always blessed that in all the churches in, in that area, we were known as the church that teaches the Bible. That was always a compliment. 
We must never allow these other activities, good as they are, become the primary identity of the church. I believe that at the center, undergirding all the ministries and activities that we have, we need to find the church holding on to these four things. And you know, you're all sitting in a chair there. The chair has four legs. And you know, a chair with four legs is very stable. You can sit on it. You're comfortable. You can even lift your legs and arms off of it and you won't fall. But if one leg is missing, the chair becomes slightly unstable. You have to exert some energy to keep yourself in the chair. Or at least you have some fear of falling out. If you remove two legs or three legs, again, you could possibly sit in that chair without falling over, but more and more energy needs to be exerted on your part. And obviously, if four legs are gone, then the church falls, I mean, the chair falls over. And I've always seen that as a picture of these four, what I call pillars or legs of a healthy church, where, where all four of these activities are seen in a church, I believe the church is going to be healthy, strong, stable, able to endure trials. But where one or two or three of these activities are missing, the church becomes increasingly unstable, much more prone to falling, and very often more uncomfortable for the members of the church. And certainly where none of these activities are found, the church is falling, falling apart. So what are, these, what are these four things that I believe as a church we must never forget? And again, these are things we know, but we see there that they gave themselves, verse 42, they continued steadfastly, they gave themselves. Again, before we, we go into even the first of the four things, we see that there was a discipline there was a persevering in these things. It wasn't just they fell into these things. They, they decided to do them. They decided to persevere in them. There was some thought, some discipline required. And I think very oftentimes um, as Christians, we kind of hope that everything that happens around church or involvement in church will just kind of flow and be comfortable for us. It'll be easy. But in fact, a lot of these things, prayer, reading the scriptures, sitting and listening to the scriptures, fellowshipping, we find that they actually do take a lot of effort. And you say, but I thought being a Christian shouldn't require my effort. Well, there is, a, there is discipline that comes with being a Christian. And as we walk and persevere in that discipline, there is a blessing that comes as a result. But here we see that there, they, in a disciplined way, followed after these four things. And the first thing that they followed after was in the apostles' doctrine. What does that mean? It means that after salvation, they found themselves wanting more and more of the word of God. They heard Peter's teaching and it brought them to repentance and salvation first. But now they were continuing in it steadfastly, in a disciplined way, persevering in it. And what were the apostles teaching? You remember that they didn't have the New Testament. The gospels weren't written. So the apostles were teaching the Old Testament. They were teaching the words of Christ as they remembered them that were emblazoned, I'm sure, upon their hearts. Maybe they were preaching or teaching the Sermon on the Mount or the Upper Room Discourse. But 
We find that these new converts were so hungry for the word of God that they could not get enough. And it says in verse 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. You know, there's so much, and I'm sure being at Calvary Chapel, I'm sure you've heard many, many sermons, and there's much I can say about the word of God and the need for us to receive the word of God and to preach the word of God. Let me just remind you of a few. I think of Joshua chapter one, verse eight. He says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe it and do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Prosperity in a sense Success in life is promised as we make the gospel, the word of God foundational in our life. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 verse 18, do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What can we liken the word of God in our, in our life and in the ministry of a church? You know, there's been many times when I've been on, a, on not a sea, but a lake, Lake Victoria. And, you know, when you're on a lake in a boat and there's a load in the boat, the boat sits down nicely in the water. And no matter what waves or winds come, the boat just kind of keeps going straight because it's settled down in the water and that the rudder and the keel bite into the water and keep it going straight. And I often think of how that's like the word of God in our life. When we're heavy with the word of God, it's like we've, we've set down in the water of life. And no matter what waves do or winds do, they can buffet us and want us, make us want to change direction. But the word of God just settling us down keeps us going straight through all the different things that want us to keep us, to want to get us off track. I think of a quote by, um, it was actually originally by Tozer, but it, my grandfather often quoted it, talking about the power, the importance of the word of God. And he said, you know, the word of God without the spirit of God is dead. And you know, if we pursue the word of God outside of the spirit, in other words, purely as an intellectual exercise, it's as dead as, as the stones that a church is built with. But then he went on to say, he said, but the spirit of God without the word is dangerous. And you might think, well, that's kind of interesting. Is the spirit of God dangerous? Well, certainly the Bible would tell us that the spirit of God would never contradict himself, never contradict the word. But in my experience and being involved in a lot of churches in Africa, you see there are a lot of places where there's a lot of zeal and a lot of hype and a lot of what they think is the spirit of God, but there is no word of the God that's guiding it. And you find the church just doing all kinds of crazy things way off track, wrong doctrine. But then he, he ends up by saying, but, this, but the word of God by the spirit of God is dynamite. And that's what we want. 
We want the word of God preached in the boldness of the spirit of God, in the power of the spirit of God, because that's when it's going to do its work. It's going to do its work in us. It's going to do its work in the community that we're in. And so we see the first thing that they were pursuing was the word of God. And they continued steadfastly in doctrine and fellowship. Again, not only did they devote themselves to teaching, but they devoted themselves to fellowship. You know, oftentimes we talk about fellowship. What is fellowship? We think of fellowship as maybe having coffee or a meal or a barbecue together. We talk about the weather. We talk about our families. And you know what? That may be part of what fellowship is. But we know more. We know that fellowship is more than that. I know that John has talked about this on Sunday night. Fellowship is, ha, carries the idea of sharing, participating with each other, walking through life together. And here in the early church, as we read down through these verses, we see that there was fellowship. And it certainly involved the believers being together, but it was more. It rested in a mutual generosity. And it revolved around giving and a willingness to get dirty, a willingness to get our hands dirty with each other, get involved in each other's lives. I'm going to say two things about fellowship that I've come to understand. Fellowship is necessary for growth and maturity as a Christian. Fellowship is necessary. I don't believe a Christian can really grow without giving themselves to fellowship. I'm amazed at how many people think that going to church is optional. Like Christ would come and die for it and one day present himself as the bridegroom to it and present the bride to himself and then kind of throw it out there and say, hey guys, here's, here's something you might try if nothing else works for you. The church is us. The church is is the body. It's parts working together. It's the bride of Christ. And it is part of the way that God has ordained our sanctification. The way that we work out our salvation is being in the rough and tumble of church fellowship, being thrown into a family with parents, brothers and sisters that you didn't ask for, nor had the opportunity to choose, being forced to do life and be happy about it. <laughs> How else do we learn love and patience except in the context of the church? I think of myself before I was married. I thought I was the best husband and the best father until I got married and had kids. <laughs> it was in the context of fellowship with my wife and fellowship with my family that I realized my shortcomings. I remember the time when my son, my son always loved to collect stones. And whenever we'd go to these places, he'd buy these shiny stones. And so one day we decided, you know what, rather than buy these stones, we're going to buy you a, a stone polisher. I had no idea how a stone polisher worked until that time. So we bought him a stone polisher and it gave us these instructions and it had a bunch of rocks that were very rough. And basically, I think there was some grit or sand that you threw in there with a whole pile of stones and you let it churn for a very long time, not just hours, but several days. 
And through the process of these rocks tumbling against each other with the sand in between them, after a few days of this churning, you open it up and you have stones that are beautiful and colorful and polished. And I remember looking at it and thinking that's very much like what God accomplishes in the church. It's like we're all stones thrown in and tumbled together. And you know what? We all are kind of rough and jagged and unpolished. But, you know, as we live life and, and tumble around in, in this fellowship, you know, we're polished. God takes the rough edges off of us because we're forced to be patient. We're forced to be understanding. We're forced to confront our own selfishness. Being in fellowship will stretch you. It will challenge you. It'll put you way out of your comfort zone. But that's exactly what God intended for the church. Because it's this process, it's in this process that we are refined and we grow in grace. Again, there are many people who use the excuse, oh, you Christians, you're hypocrites. I'm tired of pastors that misrepresent themselves or steal money, or I'm tired of the church is full of imperfect people that are hypocritical. And they use that as an excuse to not go to church. And they say, well, I do church at home. And I do realize there are people who are homebound that have to do that. But I say you're missing out because certainly we never claim that the church is full of perfect people. But in fact, we need each other. And we need each other in our imperfect way because together we sharpen each other. We bring out the beauty in each other. So fellowship is necessary for our growth. And it's also necessary for our safety. There's safety when we maintain fellowship and danger when we forsake it. I often think of the National Geographic uh, movies where you, you see a lion pursuing a herd. And what are, the, what are the animals that the lion pursues? He pursues the one that kind of breaks off on his own or the young one that's weak that falls behind. And I've often thought how, how fitting a picture it is for how the devil goes after those within the body. And how very often the devil wants to single us out, wants to make us think, oh, you don't need to go to church. No one wants to see you anyway. No one will miss you. Just stay home. That's the devil. He's wanting to single you out. He wants to do a number on you. And I would just encourage you to recognize that for what it is and, and encourage you to realize how much we do need fellowship. The early church gave themselves to fellowship. And I pray that we wouldn't just think of coming together on Sunday morning as just an optional activity that is good for us to do, but it's a necessary thing for us to do. I know I'm challenged. There's always people that may, I may or may not want to talk to, but I'm kind of forced to, aren't I? <laughs> There's always those people you want to avoid, but in the context of church, you have to deal with that. And that's what Christ wants us to do. And that's why fellowship is important. Two more things that they gave themselves to, and I'll go over these quickly. The breaking of bread. 
in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And oftentimes we think of that as communion. And certainly that's part of it, the Lord's table, fellowshipping at the Lord's table. But it's also, when we go down through this passage, it, it tells us they would go from house to house, communing with each other and taking bread together. And I think that the idea here of taking bread is certainly partly the idea of remembering the Lord's table, remembering what Christ has done on the cross. But it's also sharing our table, opening up our house, extending hospitality to others. Again, that I remember as a kid, my parents, my grandparents always had people over to our house. We were always having guests at our table. And you know what? That's kind of become a lost art in modern day society, hasn't it? Instead, we we don't want to have people come to our house because it's inconvenient. We have to clean the house, this, that, and the other. We take them out to eat. And not that that's wrong, but but there is an idea here of fellowship around our table and sharing of what we have with others. I think it's a good discipline. And certainly it was part of what the early church gave themselves to sharing with one another, remembering the completed work of Christ on the cross. These two ideas go together. When we live in the attitude of remembering what Christ did for us, it is going to cause us an attitude of gratitude that we will want to share with others. And then lastly, it says they gave themselves to prayer. Not only listening to the word of God, not only practicing God's word in giving and sharing and remembering, but also communicating with God himself. And I'm so blessed by just in the short time that I've been here, the emphasis on prayer and prayer groups on certain days of the week. And what a blessing that is. I know that I was certainly challenged in my own prayer life going and living in another country because there are so many things that we take for granted in our country here. There's so many safety nets that if our prayer doesn't work, we can fall back on. You know, if God doesn't heal me of my flu, I can go to the emergency room and get that, get that cured. But when you're in a place where there are no safety nets, there is no social security, there is no health insurance, there is another kind of urgency when people pray. And sometimes we might, we from here might look at that as fanatical prayer. But when you're in it, you realize it's just urgent prayer. It's down on your knees prayer. It's prayer that says, God, I don't have any other answer except you. And I learned to see how beautiful it was. And we might look at that, enter into such a prayer meeting and it might look chaotic to us. That's the way I used to view it. But I came to see it was just the urgent cry of one of God's children crying out to their, their father, asking for help. And I believe God wants us to be in that place of urgency, not that these safety nets that we have here in America are evil, certainly not. We're blessed to have them. But I would say that we miss out in exercising our faith when we have these safety nets. That's one area where our faith doesn't have to work like it would in another place. And then as I close tonight, those, we see that there are these four things, four legs, four things a church should never forget. The word of God, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, 
And then we see the result. And I'll just go quickly through this because this is what's exciting to me. Look at verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. When I look at verse 43, we see that there was an, a sense of awe and excitement at what the Lord was doing within the church. Signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. Verse 44, there was unity. Now all those who believed were together, had, an all, had all things in common. Verse 45, there was a selfless spirit of generosity. And they sold their possessions and goods and, excuse me, divided them amongst all as anyone had need. Verse 46, there was community. So continuing with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. There was gratefulness and contentment. Verse 47, there was worship, praising God and having favor with the people. Verse 47, there was growth. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And at the end of all that, we see that evangelism was happening and the church was growing. A natural progression of the kingdom of God in a community. Christians being Christians, the church being the church. And it was relevant. It was affecting society. It was, it was growing. People were coming into the number because they liked what they saw. You know, I remember standing... I was on a trip to Israel one time and I remember standing in Capernaum in that little synagogue, they say, where Jesus preached his first sermon on that little lake, thinking this is where Jesus began his ministry. And just recalling the very words of Jesus from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Those simple words, those words of hope, those words of reconciliation, Jesus began his ministry. And then in a small village, maybe some of you have been to Israel, been to Capernaum, you know how small Capernaum is. And just thinking, wow, that's, this is where of all the places that Jesus would begin his ministry, it was this place. And then touring through Israel and you, you know, see, you see the ancient Roman, Roman temples and the amphitheaters and the um, various other temples. And then we went to Rome and you see the grandeur of Rome, all the, what historically must have been just awesome. And I remember thinking, and this was very profound in my, in my own mind at the time, you know, you kind of have in contrast two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of Christ begun in a simple way in a little tiny village in the north of Israel on the shore of Lake, of Lake Galilee. And then you have the kingdom of men, the Roman Empire, with all its grandeur and pomp and power and authority. And then going there and you see what the end result was. Well, today, it's the Catholic Church all over Rome. It's a Catholic Church. And you may not say that Catholicism is Christianity, but they were the holders. They were the holders of the gospel for many centuries. And ultimately what I saw was, is that ultimately the best that men could do, which was Rome, was eventually, eventually became a relic. It was overcome by what God wants to do, by the kingdom of Christ. And, you know, thinking it just in that very short timeline, Christ would be in, in Capernaum around 32 AD, 
Paul would be on the steps of Rome preaching in the Praetorium not 30 or 40 years later. Amazing what the power of the gospel accomplished. And here we are, in a sense, on the verge of something new, going into a new community, a new building, more importantly, a new ministry. What is it that we are trusting in? Is it how fancy, how well done the facility is, how rehearsed we are? Or is our fundamental faith is in, the, is in the power of God, in the power of the word of God to transform? And what is the community going to see? You know, in this community, people saw what was going on in Acts 2.42. People given to the word of God, given to fellowship, given to prayer, given to sharing And it had a massive effect. What do we want people to see as we move into the community? I mean, certainly we, you could say it's a different time, a different culture. It's too hard to replicate that. Yeah, we don't need to artificially replicate something from then. But there's an idea, there's an attitude that is in these verses that I think that we need to ponder And to me, it's important. I think it's important for this church. And you're blessed that you've been grounded in solid teaching of the word of God for many years. And again, what I share with you this evening is simply a reminder, certainly a reminder of many things that we already know. But for me, very important things. And I pray that we would go back to the Simple things. I'm reminded of a verse in Second Corinthians, how Paul was asking them and exhorting them, have you forgotten the simplicity that is in Christ? And I'm excited. I'm excited to be a part. I'm excited to walk alongside this process, to be in this church with this opportunity to take the gospel into a new community and to continue... Pastor Rob's vision of defending this bean patch.